Good evening, and welcome to Nighty Night with Rabia Chaudhry. Bedtime stories to keep you awake. I'm DJ Lubell, the show's producer. We all know how beautiful music can be, but tonight's tale shows us it can also be incredibly evil. Please enjoy The Siren. The dark presence looked up when it heard the sound of an approaching motor. The sound was far, far off in the distance, and the beams of the headlights never would have reached the woods where it lurked. It had no fear of being seen, but it could see. Oh, it could see. The creature watched the car drive through the night, drive down the long and lonely lane to the farmhouse far out in the field. The porch light was on. The driver was expected. Music drifted in on the air, music that wasn't from the car speakers or from any man-made object. It was something ethereal, something eternal. The creature nodded, pleased. It knew its hunger would soon be sated. It would eat well tonight. The music was a dinner bell. Betty pushed the stray hair back from her face dark brown wisps that had come free from her hair wrap. She felt eyes on her and looked up to catch her boss leaning on a counter a few feet away, chewing gum, watching her without even trying to hide it. Betty. It wasn't a name anyone would have picked for her if they'd actually known her. Imagine a Betty. You probably conjure up images of a 1950s housewife, of a calm and obedient woman, someone subservient, Maybe that's why people treated her differently. They already had an idea of her formed even before they knew her. And maybe that's why Betty never really felt like herself, because she was constantly competing with expectations the world had for her. And those expectations were mostly created by men. Men who told her things like, this ain't any kind of job for a lady, like O'Reilly did when he interviewed her. It was the kind of thing she'd heard so many times she'd lost count. And sure, in an ideal world, Betty, with her graduate degree in business, would not have been applying for a countergirl position at a local butcher shop. But times were what they were, and she needed to make rent. In another time, in another world, Betty wouldn't have had to worry about it. But it was this time, and this world, and when her old job had to make layoffs, of course she was one of the first ones to go, while several men Betty knew to be wildly unqualified stayed on. Such was the power of being bros with the boss. O'Reilly, the butcher shop owner, looked at Betty with that look that she was unfortunately all too familiar with, the one where she knew exactly what was going on right behind his eyes. This ain't exactly a job for a lady, he'd said, but people aren't exactly beating down the door to work at a butcher shop. He was quiet for a moment, as if he expected her to say something. She did not. All right, you're hired. Not any kind of job for a lady, Betty thought, wondering what year the old man must have thought it was. It really didn't matter. Betty could have shown O'Reilly a calendar, could have shown him that cars didn't look like electric razors anymore. She could have shown him that we did, in fact, have a black president once. It wouldn't have mattered. Time seemed to move differently for men than it did for women. It always had. Betty wondered if it always would. She knew it would for people like O'Reilly. He was the kind of man who called Betty things like sweetheart and little lady without a second thought. 
told her to make sure she smiled at the customers. Betty wasn't sure how they were even supposed to see it behind her sanitary mask, but she nodded at her boss anyways. O'Reilly always had old big band music playing. Not out of his phone connected to speakers, but out of an actual radio. Not that either of those things were inherently bad, Betty just thought it was a perfect exhibit of the divide between the two of them. And then one day when Betty was cleaning the countertop, the music changed all of a sudden. Or maybe it was her ears. It was the same song for sure, but the key changed. The rhythm of the beats slowed down in some places, sped up in others. The music was warped and it seemed like the woman crooning didn't know the words anymore. It sounded like someone was doing a parody of the original track, bebopping an approximation of a big band song. Betty looked at O'Reilly. He didn't seem to notice a change. His head was still down, moving to a beat that didn't match what was coming out of the radio anymore. She thought maybe the radio needed a whack or the dial needed adjustment. She walked closer to the ancient machine and bent down to look at the dial. She slowly turned into the left, expecting the music to drop off, screech into oblivion, but it didn't. The warped, other-dimensional song kept playing. But when she leaned closer to the speaker, Betty realized it wasn't coming from the radio. For a few moments, Betty thought she was going mad. And then she realized, no, the song was real, and she was hearing it. It was playing just for her. Betty told the old man she was going to take the trash out. She needed an excuse to go outside, out back, where her intuition told her the music was coming from. O'Reilly looked at her surprised. Usually he hauled the trash out, but what did he care? He smirked and shrugged, and Betty turned away quickly to hide the small smile on her face. The music was making her giddy. She didn't know the tune, but she found herself humming along, even though she felt a bit silly doing so. Not the kind of silly like when she'd drunk too much, but the kind of silly when she just met someone that made her heart jump. When she was in the period of everything being new and the possibilities were endless. Before, the layers peeled back and the realization set in that this new guy was just like so many other guys she had met. Interested in hooking up a few times and then disappearing. Ghosting her as if she was nothing more than a disposable object. Not a human being with a heart and emotions and hopes. Betty bent over to pull the thick black trash bag out of the bin under the counter. As she did so, she heard a low, long whistle come from O'Reilly. She ignored it. Like she ignored the times he pressed up against her when he was meant to be passing behind her. Or the times she caught his eyes on her breasts. Or the times he'd offered her a ride home after work, insisting so forcefully that her entire body burned with indignation as she repeatedly rejected the advance. Betty dragged the trash bag to the back door and pushed open the door to the alley. The air lightened and she took a deep breath, looking to her left and right, seeking the source of the song in her ears. She knew how it felt to have a pair of eyes on her, and right now, that was what it felt like, as if she was being watched. But it wasn't like when it was men on the sidewalk or when O'Reilly's watery red eyes were looking down at her. No, this felt like a loving gaze, warm, like the way a mother looks at her child. Betty felt a surge of euphoria as the song grew louder in her head. And then, out of the corner of her eye, she saw someone. About 20 feet away, down the darkened alley, she saw it. There was someone out there. Or was it something? Betty couldn't tell. 
She squinted, her breath held, trying to make out the figure. But no matter how hard she tried, the image remained unfocused, peripheral, even as she stared at it straight on. It was darker than the rest of the night and seemed to loom as high as a door. Whatever or whoever it was, Betty knew instinctively that it was the source of the song. The dark shape moved towards Betty, staying close to the wall of the building. Betty should have been terrified, but she wasn't. For some reason, she felt an intense pity for the creature, an empathy for it. What seemed like limbs appeared to her, but it was as if she was looking at the creature through a heat shimmer. Betty didn't know how she knew, but she sensed it was weak, feeble, and that it needed her. When it hovered just a few feet away, Betty fought the urge to reach out and touch it. Instead, she smiled. And just like that, it was touching her. Warm hands and arms had come out of the dark and wrapped themselves around her. Was this, Betty wondered, what love felt like? The creature was singing to her in a voice that contrasted how frail it otherwise seemed. The voice was full and powerful, how Betty imagined some ancient Valkyrie might sound. It was no longer singing the big band song, though. There were no words, just a deep, lulling melody that felt part hymn, part ballad. The tune ran low, full of pain and dread, and then crept up high, evoking jubilation. Whatever it was, it felt like a love song. It continued to serenade Betty and filled her with exhilaration and a deep longing. For what, she wasn't sure. But he leaned back against the door of the shop, her eyes closed as she felt a warmth spread through her body. Her pulse raced and her head felt light. She felt like a teenager who had just wandered into her crush in the school hall. What is this? What are you doing to me? What do you want from me? As soon as the last question formed in her head, Betty knew the answer. She knew exactly what it wanted from her. It was hungry. That gaunt, emaciated form with the beautiful voice. It was starving. Betty couldn't let that happen. After all, didn't Betty have all the food in the world right there? She darted back inside, loudly humming to herself. It was the same tune the creature sang to her, a tune that was strange and yet familiar, like an ancient melody that she knew from a past life. O'Reilly was helping a customer, unaware that she was back inside. Betty quietly slid open a glass enclosure and silently pulled out a plump red steak. She tucked it under her apron and headed back through the swinging doors to the back room that led to the rear door of the store. It was still out there, waiting for her. She knew it would still be out there, because the song hadn't wavered once, not at all while she was inside. Betty held up the bloody cut of meat to the presence, the music in her mind swelling as she did. She was so enamored she didn't even mind the red juices running over her fingers, dripping down her wrist and arm. A long, lanky hand reached towards Betty's offering and slowly took it from her fingers. Betty had expected the steak would be snatched quickly from her hands as if she was feeding a stray dog. But no, the creature gently reached out, its fingertips slowly brushing against Betty's as it took the meat. For a brief moment, the fog around the creature cleared and Betty was able to see the hand that held the raw chunk of red meat. Betty saw that the digits were withered and old, as if the creature was a corpse freshly crawled out of the grave. Gaudy rings, now rusted and brown, the gems chipped, adorned the dead hand. They too looked like they had spent too much time in a maggot-filled grave. The creature ate, 
and somehow its song kept going. There was no interruption to its aria as it chewed. As the meat disappeared, more of the creature became visible. Betty could see it wasn't as tall as she thought, that the dark and shadows had played tricks on her eyes. It was, in fact, about her height. The creature finished eating and held out its hand again. Its song, still uninterrupted, changed tenor. It was communicating with her through that song. It knew that Betty could understand it, and what Betty understood was that the creature was not satisfied. It needed more. Instantly, Betty realized that the steak didn't suffice. She was going to need something fresh. Betty walked back into the butcher shop, humming the love song that was now emanating from her very soul. She stood by the counter and watched as O'Reilly thanked the most recent customers and watched them leave. When he turned and looked at her, he didn't even notice the way she stood there, seemingly vacant. Of course he didn't. That was how little she really registered with him, how little attention he paid to her as a human being. Betty thought about power as she looked across the room at O'Reilly, about what she had and what she didn't. She kept her eyes on O'Reilly and carefully unknotted the apron strings around her waist and lifted it over her head, letting the bloody fabric fall to the floor. She reached up to remove the handkerchief she kept tied around her hair and pulled her dark locks free from the ponytail holder. She didn't have to say a word, and yet she'd communicated everything that she needed to. O'Reilly's eyes widened and his face turned red. A grin spread from ear to ear as he pulled off his gloves and hastily unbuttoned his butcher's coat. He knew what was about to happen here. He watched in amazement as Betty backed out of the swinging doors, knowing it was his cue to follow her. If he wondered why Betty drew him out into the alley, he didn't say a thing or show it in any way. He just followed Betty out there silently. And by the time the door closed behind him, by the time he saw the creature, it was far too late. Betty watched O'Reilly's face go from delighted to terrified in a single moment. The song buzzed loudly in her ears, drowning out O'Reilly's scream when the eight-inch cleaver she had tucked into her waistband buried deep into his neck. Again and again, Betty lifted the cleaver and brought it down. When her work was done, she turned to look at the creature, pleased at what she could offer her. Her. That was the first time she realized the creature was a her. It wasn't just the vague outline of a person anymore. It was a woman. Betty could make out pale skin and long dark hair, but little else in the dark haze around it. When the creature changed its tune, it was speaking to her, and Betty understood everything. You saved me. The dark shadow came closer and gave her a gentle and grateful kiss. Betty was so enamored, she didn't even mind the blood on her lips. The sign on the butcher shop door read, Closed. It would read that way for quite some time, even though there was someone inside, someone working furiously over a bloodied counter. Betty watched the flies buzzing around the dead flesh at the Venus flytrap on the countertop. It wasn't a hunter. It just waited patiently, waited for its food to come to it. She listened to the buzzing of wings, watched as a fly flew around and around, and eventually made the last mistake it ever would. The jaws of the flytrap closed around it, and Betty heard music in the air. Nowadays, when Betty slept, she dreamed, and when she dreamed, she dreamed of some time long ago. 
she was a princess in an ancient kingdom. She didn't know where she was or when it was, but she knew this was an ancient time. There were no modern worries plaguing her, no cell phones, no social media. She didn't have to worry about her commute, about constant updates from friends or work, targeted ads asking her if she wanted to quickly lose 25 pounds or discover a new way to satisfy her man. Instead, there was only her and her long, beautiful gowns, the servants who waited on her hand and foot, and the lyre music playing gently in the background, even though Betty could see no actual musician. As in any dream, there was no logic, just wildly changing images, things that Betty knew would be branded into her mind forever. Betty sat atop a throne. Servants mingled in the background, and all before her were knights, ready to ask for her hand. But they weren't actually talking to her. Betty traced their eyes, saw that they looked not at her, but over her shoulder, where there stood a man, the king. The man in the dream didn't look like Betty's father in real life. He was a quiet, kind man with a clean-shaven face. This king looked rather like every old, jolly king you see in a movie about the Middle Ages. Big beard that hid slightly rosy cheeks, a portly belly, and a slightly askew crown. The king put his hand on Betty's shoulder, and what he possessed was no human hand, but the claws of some fetid demon. Some wretched, dead thing that reeked and made Betty's skin crawl. Of course, he told the knights, of course you can have her. Not just one of you, he said. All of you can have her. Princess Betty tried to say something, anything to protest, but she couldn't speak. There was nothing blocking her mouth, she just simply didn't know how. She never did, was never allowed, and therefore had never learned. She looked over to the knights who were all talking amongst themselves about which one deserved to take their turn with her first. None of them even looked in her direction. And then came the voice from the back of her head. Betty could hear it and she could feel it. And it felt like everything she ever wanted. It felt comforting. It felt familiar. It was her creature. It was there with her. Betty felt it before she saw it, felt it wrap itself around her. Betty watched as a dark shadow rose up behind the oblivious nights. It grew larger and larger, and the candles and torches and even the windows darkened. But no one seemed to notice. So preoccupied were they with their heated discussion about which night Princess Betty belonged to. As they fought, as their discussion turned into shouting, Betty felt a warmth in the back of her throat, like that first sip of tea on a cold autumn day. She knew instinctually it was her voice returning to her, and the moment she could, she opened her mouth and sang. Her voice was beautiful and it was dark, and it encouraged the shadow to move even faster, to overtake the room, swallow the knights, the king, everyone but Betty and her throne. There was darkness, but there was still Betty's song. There was the hurried, panic shuffling from the knights, the clacking of their armor and their swords being drawn, but there was still Betty's song. There was the screaming, the wet, squelching sounds among the darkness, but there was still Betty's song. No one ever found O'Reilly because there wasn't any of him left to find. Only a bloodstain on the alley wall behind the butcher shop showed that he was ever even there. The police launched a full-scale investigation, and Betty acted contrite, told the police officers that she had last seen her boss when she left work that day, that he was going to lock up like he always did. There was nothing out of the ordinary about that. 
The man always stayed late. He was a hard worker. His wife and children confirmed as much to the authorities. No one looked twice at Betty. At least, not in that way. The detective who interviewed her, a tall man who walked with his badge and not with his feet, like he was an old gunslinger, called her my dear and darling. When he came near her, Betty heard old Western music in her head, so old there was an audible record scratch to it. She saw him projecting the power of his badge and his gun in his movements, cocky and proud, comfortable as he leaned over her. He patted her on the shoulder a few too many times and for too long. He said everything was going to be okay, said not to look back in the alley. He stared. He lingered too long. The officer gave her his card and told her that if she remembered something, if she ever needed anything at all, day or night, to give him a call. And so she did. She told him that she remembered something that could be helpful. Her voice sounded sincere, but of course it did, because it wasn't just her speaking. The creature spoke with her through her, giving Betty strength as Betty gave strength to it. Together, they asked the officer if he could come over to help Betty make sense of what happened. Betty knew the man heard music when she spoke to him, and she knew that that music enthralled him. Of course, sweetheart. Sweetheart. He was at her place not half an hour later, the engine of his muscle car growling as he pulled up to Betty's house. No matter that these were his off hours, he would appear more generous coming in on his personal time. She would know how much he cared, what a good man he was. If only he knew how little of that mattered. If only he realized he was not a good man. But he answered her door before he even knocked. She saw the look in his eyes as he came up the walkway towards her, and she knew that he heard the music, sweet and deep, calling to him. He was drunk off of the music before he even made it all the way into the house, before Betty even shut the door behind him. He never even saw the hammer. The sound in the house was the thick, wet cracking of bone and brain matter. But to Betty and to the creature that was with her, it was the beautiful rhythmic percussion of drums. The offering of the poor old detective brought her creature into clearer view. Betty could make out the shape of her body, the curve of hips, the flash of a withered leg. But even though the creature stayed with her all the time now, wanting to be fed, Betty could still not see its face. She knew what she had to do, though, in order to unveil her companion completely. And it was remarkable how simple it was, how easy the mechanics of the internet and the mechanics of the male brain made it for her. All she needed was a picture of herself in just enough clothing and a flirty caption on a few random websites, and like a Venus flytrap, she waited, knowing that her victims would find her. Each man came to her drawn by the same achingly beautiful music, unable to fight the pull of it. But Betty didn't hear what they heard. She heard the music that came from them, from their very souls. There was one man who filled her head with heavy metal thrashing, her ears ached from screeching and screaming, drums pounding. With her creature watching, Betty caved in his head to the tune of indecipherable screams she wasn't sure were from the music or came from him. It didn't matter. When she and the creature drank from the bowl of his skull, they imagined how fitting they would look as the cover to a heavy metal album. We are the Valkyries of Vengeance, Betty thought. There was an older man whose presence filled her with folk songs. 
When Betty focused on his music and closed her eyes, she saw him crouching in a field of wheat, watching the woman who lived next door walk right past, unaware that his eyes were following her. He first started watching women as a boy, and as a boy he was never caught, and so he was never punished. Over and over she saw images of him hiding, watching women and girls secretly, violating them without them ever knowing it. He began as a boy, but he did it throughout his years as a man. For his transgression, thought Betty, will take his eyes. After he was dead, she popped them like grapes between her teeth. Another man brought the sounds of electronica to Betty's ears. He was a CEO type, a peacock of a man, all slick suits and fast cars and two white teeth. The kind of man who always put his hand into the small of a woman's back for group photos. Someone who seemed to have no real feelings. All he cared about were his accomplishments and a checklist of people he'd conquered one way or another. Betty certainly made him feel something as she stuck an axe into his neck while rave music pounded in her ears. There were those men and so many more, and they would have begun piling up if Betty and the creature hadn't done something about it, if they hadn't already known exactly how to dispose of the evidence so that it was never found. It took a half dozen men, all those meals, before her creature, whom Betty loved so much now, finally came into full view, until Betty was finally able to look her in the face. And there she found herself. When her creature's form finally and completely emerged from the haze that always surrounded it, it was like looking into a mirror. And Betty laughed. And she sang. And she listened to the loving music her creature poured into her. It was always me, she thought. Betty. Betty was the one that needed to be fed, that needed strength. Betty was the one that rewarded lecherous men for their lust. Betty was the one who herself was filled with an ancient love song meant to protect her. Betty, who would ever have expected something like this from someone named Betty? This week's story was largely based on two tales, the mythological siren and the very real serial killer, Belle Gunness. The sirens, which most people may be familiar with, are creatures that appear in ancient Greek mythology whose brilliant songs lure sailors to their deaths. Hence, the siren song. Now, you might think that because they're associated with water, they're some kind of mermaid creature, but originally they were actually depicted as half-women and half-bird creatures. Later in history, though, their legends did begin to overlap with mermaid tales. While the origin of the myth about the siren is not clear, they do most famously appear in Homer's Odyssey, wherein the hero Odysseus encounters a pair of sirens that attempt to lure him and his sailors to their deaths. He cleverly avoids this terrible fate by closing up his ears with wax and having his men tie him to the mast of their ship so he doesn't lose control of himself. Sirens have been characterized in different ways throughout history, and not always evil. Some tales cast them with psychopomp characteristics, helping ferry lost souls to the other side. In the early modern period, though, sirens began symbolizing the particular dangers that patriarchal society considered to be unique to women. Literal explanations for sirens were often sought, with some claiming that courtesans and prostitutes were either literal or metaphorical sirens, and that unmarried women often sought to lead careless men astray. To that, I say, tie yourself up if you can't control yourself, boys. That is your problem. 
Now, certainly the more harrowing inspiration for this tale, though, is the very real story of Bel Gunnis. Born Brynhild, Paul's daughter, Storsad, the youngest of eight, she gained notoriety for killing as many as 40 men in Illinois and Indiana between the years of 1884 and 1908. Much like the mythical siren, Gunnis would entice men with the prospects of marriage, kill them, and then collect the insurance for their deaths. Several children, both her own and those of others, allegedly also died while in Gunnis' care, though there are many rumors that some of those children never existed, considering no one saw her pregnant, and she also received insurance money upon each death. Gunnis' crimes only ever came to light after her farmhouse burned down in 1908. The remains of so many people were discovered on the property that the police apparently simply stopped counting. One headless body was initially assumed to be Gunnis, but her death was never confirmed. Gunnis was never apprehended, though we can assume that by now she is long dead of natural causes. Unless, of course, Gunnis was never human at all, and was instead a siren of yore. Tonight's Tale was written by Travis Madden and Rabia Chaudhry. Nighty Night is executive produced by Rabia Chaudhry and Colin Thompson. It's produced by DJ Lubell. It's sound designed and edited by Anton Doty. Original music by Andrew Gerlicker. Nighty Night is a cast original podcast. When you go on holiday, there is no finer achievement than doing absolutely nothing. Nothing on the beach, nothing by the pool. Walking kind of nowhere and chatting about nothing. As an Expedia member, you can save up to 30% when you add a hotel to your flight. So you can have a bit more money to go out there with great ambition to do absolutely nothing. Expedia. Made to travel.